Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. My name is Dr. Scott Powell, and I am a solo Lanky Guy today. Uh, Father Peter was unavailable to do the podcast, traveling out of town. And so you're stuck with me. So we're going to be doing a bit of an abbreviated episode today, but I wanted to give you a little of uh, our insights into the scriptures this week. So we are looking at the 20th Sunday in Ordinary Time this week. So our first reading this week is coming from the book of Isaiah, chapter 56, verse 1, and then jumping over to verses 6 through 7. Our responsorial psalm is coming from, coming from Psalm 67, verses 2 through 3. 5, 6, and 8 in the response oriel itself is from verse 4. Our second reading is coming from the end of the book of Romans, or the tail end of the book of Romans, chapter 11, verses 13 through 15, and then 29 through 32. And lastly, our gospel is going to be coming from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28, which is a kind of a troublesome passage. So we'll, we'll take a look at what Jesus is doing there. So, Isaiah. What's going on in Isaiah? Um, Isaiah 56, this is the beginning of what is understood to be the third part of Isaiah's book. And so um, really the way that the book of Isaiah is split, Isaiah, by the way, I think it's one of the most complicated and complex books in the Bible. I think it's, <laughs> I personally think it's more confusing than Revelation because in Revelation, you have very clear imagery and symbolism and stuff. Isaiah is just, it's just difficult. It's big and it's dense and there's t- jumping from time period to time period. Some of it is present tense, some of it is future tense, some of it is past tense. But the third part of the book is actually clear. It's looking ahead to the future. So in the first part of the book, you have the book of woe and really Isaiah is warning Israel uh, about their sin and the ways that they've turned from God and the reasons they need to repent. Um, The second half of the book shows that God will restore them. The book of consolation, it's often called. How God will comfort them and he'll turn back to them. And then from chapter 55 through uh, through 66, we're looking toward, it's what's called eschatology. It's part of the book looking toward the end. What's going to happen when all of time reaches its consummation? Which for us as Christians is not the end of the world. It's the coming of Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus Christ the quote-unquote end times have come. And by end, at least in the Jewish mindset, end for the Hebrew mindset didn't mean like, you know, if you're standing in the line at the grocery store and if there's nobody behind you, it's the end. It meant the climactic time. So the coming of Jesus ushered in the end times, which means the climax of all of human history. And you and I are living smack in the middle of that. And what Isaiah 56 and that whole surrounding area is speaking about is the time period in which you and I live, and the time period that Jesus ushered. And for people living in the time of Isaiah, what is most shocking about this, and even for people, I think, living in the time of Jesus and St. Paul, because I know St. Paul deals with this topic a lot in his letters, the shocking message about this is that the covenant family of God is not just for the ethnic people of Israel but that God's covenant that he established is actually meant for all of humanity. It's meant for the nations, um, ad gentes, to the nations, to the outsiders. And most of us are actually a part of that group. I, I don't know of any ethnic Jewish blood that I have, although maybe I have some. 
but I'm not aware of any, which means I'm part of the nations. I'm part of those outsiders, which God from the very beginning of the story of salvation history has intended to bring me into, to bring us as a family together. So that's really, you know, it's the common theme for all of these readings this week, what Jesus wants to do to build his family. Because really, at the end of the day, the story of salvation history from day one, from the beginning of Adam and Eve and their sin, which ruptured the whole cosmos, the story is that of a broken family. And the reason that the Old Testament is so messy and there's so much war and strife and genocide and, you know, sin and everything else you read about is because what the scriptures are trying to tell us in no uncertain terms is that we are an utterly broken people. And we are a people who have a really hard time reconciling with the people around us. And the thing that's so scandalous about that fact is that the people around us are actually our family members. And that's really what the book of Genesis is trying to show. All of the nations that Israel will war with for the rest of the Old Testament are actually outlined in the book of Genesis as being part of the family. And so every war we have, every strife we have, every conflict we see, we're actually fighting with our family, which is a scandal for the people of God, but it's also a heartbreak for God himself. And so what these passages are pointing to is God's intent of reconciling that. So what we get in Isaiah 56 is, uh, well, let me, let me preface that. Right before chapter 56, you have chapter 55. And in chapter 55, is, as Isaiah begins this kind of looking to the future, this eschatological vision of what is to come, you see this imagery of all of these nations flocking to Mount Zion, all of these nations coming to the holy hill of God to make pilgrimage. And the way that Isaiah 55 describes this is exactly parallel with the way that Isaiah described the nations previously in his book. But earlier in the book of Isaiah, we're shown the other nations coming to the holy hill of God to make war with his people, to punish them, to destroy them, to bring war and all sorts of terrible things, which God was going to allow because they're being punished for not being the kind of people that they were called to be. But now at the end of the book, you see that imagery flipped. And now the nations are coming to the holy hill of God, to Mount Zion, to the temple, not to make war with the people of God, but to come on pilgrimage because they are a part of the people of God. And so what Isaiah 56 says, after we get that imagery of people coming on pilgrimage, we see this, these words, thus says the Lord, observe what is right, do what is just, for my salvation is about to come. My justice is about to be revealed. Now remember, in the time of Isaiah, Isaiah is trying desperately to warn the people of God that if they don't turn from their sin, there's going to be dire consequences. If they don't start becoming the people of God that they're actually meant to be, the light to the nations that God has ordained them and given the vocation of, then there's going to be punishment. They're going to have that identity stripped away from them. They're going to become an eyesore to the nation. They're going to lose their land. They're going to lose their kingdom, and they're going to lose the blessing that they were supposed to be. But now what Isaiah 56 is saying is, yeah, after that actually happens, because you are going to fall, you are going to blow it, and you're going to fall flat on your face, and there's going to be consequences for that. But after that happens, God's going to build you back up. And he says, it's not long away. My salvation is coming. My justice is about to be revealed. And what we also see is his mercy. And then in the intervening verses between two and five, there's talk about being faithful to the Sabbath. You actually have to put first things first. Give God his due, his commands, and take them seriously. But then we get this really interesting note in verse six. The foreigners, 
those outsiders, those nations, which for the rest of the book of Isaiah were all bringing war and persecution and all these terrible things. Now these foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, ministering to them, loving the name of the Lord and becoming his servants, all who keep the Sabbath free from profanation, profaning, and hold to my covenant, them I will bring to my holy mountain. I'm going to bring them into the family table and make joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. God's house, by the way, it's always shorthand for the temple. And actually these very words here in Isaiah 56, this is precisely what Jesus will quote later on in the gospel when he shows up at the end of the gospel to pronounce a curse on that same temple. And what he says is that my, this, my father's house, this temple, was supposed to be, as Isaiah points out, a house of prayer for all the nations, a place where God's family could regather. But he says, you have made it into a den of robbers, a den of thieves. You've made it something other than that. Uh, I think it's Josephus, the Jewish historian, actually tells us that in the temple itself in Jesus' time, there were actually big signs on the gates that separated the interior courts where only the Jewish people could go from the exterior courts where the Gentiles and the rest of the nations could go that said things like, you know, you who enter these gates, who is not part of Israel, you alone are responsible for the certain death that will follow you. And that's not really becoming a house of prayer for all the nations. And so Jesus calls him out and he says, look, my father's house, the temple, the Mount Zion is going to be a house of prayer for all the nations despite what the people of God try to do, despite the ways that the people of God try to separate themselves and let sin perpetuate both in their own hearts and externally. And of course, we know the end of that. Jesus says, well, this temple is going to come down because it's become a stumbling block. And he himself mounted on a cross, high and lifted up on Mount Calvary, across the valley from the old temple mount will now become the new Mount Zion, from which and to which Isaiah's prophecy of all the nations flocking is now going to come true. All the nations aren't going to go to that old temple anymore. Now they're going to come to Jesus himself. And that is the reality we actually see lived out in the Catholic Church. That is who we are. And so, that being said, we get the responsorial psalm, Psalm 67, which again, before any of this actually takes place, the scriptures are looking ahead, the providence, the Holy Spirit uh, inspiring the writers, potentially David in this case, saying, oh God, let all the nations praise you. May God have pity on us, bless us, may he let his face shine upon us so that your way may be known upon the earth, the whole earth, among all the nations, your salvation. I mean, why is it that God chooses Israel to be his favored son, his firstborn son, his holy people, the kingdom that's set apart? It's not to show them how great they are and how special they are and how better they are than everybody else. It's so that, as Jesus has to reiterate in the Sermon on the Mount, that they can become a light to all the nations. Here from the Old Testament, I mean, this is a topic that in the time of the New Testament is in a lot of debate. Wait, are Gentiles supposed to come into the family of God? How do they come in? Do they need to keep kosher, be circumcised? What's that supposed to look like? Do they even belong here? Well, from the beginning, throughout the entire Old Testament, from Isaiah to the Psalms, throughout the whole thing, we're shown that no, all the nations are meant to see the glorious salvation of God. And like Isaiah says, they have to repent 
of their ways that are foreign to the nature of God, things that keep them from God, the idolatry and everything else. They got to repent from that and leave those things behind. But God's intent is to bring everyone back together in his family. That is what the Catholic Church is meant to be. And so even here in the Psalms, we're pointed ahead toward that reality. Oh God, let all the nations praise you. And it's supposed to be this desperate cry, this hopeful cry on our lips. Please let all the nations come to you. We shouldn't be a people divided because of the God who created us or despite of the God who created us. Let all the nations, all the peoples, all, all nations, tribes, tongues, let all of them praise you. That is the, the prayer on the lips of the psalmist here, which is a prayer that's hearkening for the fulfillment of Isaiah 56. Let this stuff come true. But again, it's never as easy as it looks. And so in Romans, we get a little bit of insight into the complication of this prophecy or these prophecies. And now people are having a really hard time swallowing them. Um, I know we've talked about the book of Romans a little bit on this podcast before, but the the theme, the, the underlying message or the issue rather, let's put it that way, the book of Romans is a letter, right? And that's one thing we always have to keep in mind. It's a letter written to a particular church community in a particular time, in a particular place, dealing with very particular issues. Now, the things that Paul has to say to them are so important that the church decreed that all people in all times and all places ought to read this, uh, this stuff and, and hear these things. But initially, it was written to a church community that was really struggling in its own particular way. And the way in which the community in Rome was struggling was this question of who's better, ethnic Israel or the Gentile newcomers, these Gentiles who are coming from pagan backgrounds who have now been baptized and brought into the church. And part of the argument on each side, well, the Jews are probably saying, and you can read this in between the lines and what Paul says to them. The Jews are saying things like, well, you guys, you guys are the newcomers. You're the Johnny-come-latelys. Like, you're lucky we even let you into this covenant at all. And you're kind of getting big heads about being here. And you get the sense that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are saying, well, what about you guys? Look at how many times you broke the commandments in the Old Testament. So many of your people have rejected the Messiah. I mean, look at how he ended up on a cross. You guys are a mess as well. And so it's a community sort of at each other's throat, ethnically divided. Which one's better? We're better. No, we're better. No, you guys are worse. No, you guys stink. And what Paul wants to say, and this is what he pulls out here at the end of the book. Whenever I teach Romans, I always give the advice that it's best to read the end of Romans first because that's where you get Paul's punchline. That's where you get the so what. And if you got to read the end of the book and then go backwards, you see what he's trying to say. But the way that Paul ends the book, and it kind of comes after this point, but it's here too. Paul makes the case that, look, there's no place in the Bible that you can find where God had not intended to bring all the nations of the earth, all the Gentiles together into the community of the people of God, into the covenant relationship. And here in chapter 11, Paul's been dealing, in chapters 9 through 11, Paul deals with this really question of, well, what do we do with all these people from ethnic Israel, the people of God, the chosen race, the holy people, the firstborn son who actually have rejected the Messiah? Is God just going to forget about them? What about the fact that we're, they were the firstborn son? What do we do about that? And Paul deals with that question. But here at the end of that, he actually gives an interesting insight. Now, Paul was probably the greatest teacher of his time. And we know that because Paul was known to be the student of the greatest student of a guy named Gamaliel. He's mentioned in Acts of the Apostles. And Gamaliel was known across the board as the greatest rabbi of his time, maybe of all time. 
and at least in the Jewish mindset. And you know a good rabbi, not because they say a bunch of beautiful, amazing things, but you know a good rabbi, rabbi means teacher, by the way, you know a good rabbi because of their students. And if their students are faithful, if their students are brilliant, then you know it was a good rabbi. And Paul was known to be the best of the best. And the irony of Paul's life, I mean, think about this. Paul became the missionary, he became the apostle to the Gentiles, to all of the non-Jews. Peter, the out-of-work, fairly illiterate at the time, he obviously learned to write later on, wrote the epistles, but this, this uh, you know, kind of boneheaded fisherman becomes the apostle to the Jewish community in Jerusalem, which if you think about that, is the exact opposite of what you'd expect. Paul should be the one to go and minister to the Jewish communities, to the Pharisees, to the rabbis, to the teachers, because he's the most learned scholar of the law of his time. And he's sent precisely to the exact people who will probably not appreciate all of his learning most. And that's ironic. And he wrestles with that here in chapter 11. He's like, why did God do that? I spent my whole life learning the scripture, studying these things, becoming a Jew among Jews, the best of the best. And here God has sent me to the Gentiles, to all the non-Jews. And he speculates here in chapter 11, maybe he says this. Let me read it. I'll, I'll tell you Paul's words. Brothers and sisters, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, you non-Jews, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, and I glory in my ministry in order to make my race jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rec rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? It's an interesting point. He's saying, maybe part of why God has sent me to the Gentile community is to make my own people jealous and think, well, this was our best guy, our best scholar, and he's going to those people? He's going to these losers over here? That's, they're the last people you should go to. And he says, maybe that will change somebody's heart. And they'll say, well, why should they get Paul? Maybe we should listen to what these, he's telling these guys. And maybe there'll be a kernel that they'll catch up on and they'll pick up on. And he actually lays out the itinerary of what the, led the church's evangelic ministry, which was persecution. They began to minister in Jerusalem and Judea, and their kinspeople rejected them and drove them out through persecution, both the Jews and the Romans. But it was because of that persecution, the rejection of the message of the gospel, that the gospel actually made its way to the Gentiles. Thanks be to God for that persecution, which actually brought the gospel message to people who might not have ever received it. And Paul says, maybe some of those people who rejected it will open their eyes now and say, well, wait a second, what is he saying? Maybe we should pay attention to this. And then he goes on to say, for the gifts of God and the call of God are irrevocable. Just as you once disobeyed God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, you Gentiles who didn't know God, who were idolatrous and worshipped all sorts of other stuff, because of the rejection of many of the people of God, now you actually have the opportunity to enter into covenant. You never know how God's mercy is going to work. You never know where God is going to actually shower his graces. But you also can't look down on them because you were outsiders. Now you've been brought in. And you've been brought in through their disobedience, ironically enough. And if that's the case, imagine, Paul says, imagine if they gave their hearts over to Christ. Imagine if my kinspeople understood who our Messiah was. And he says, I fully believe that that's possible because that's how God's mercy works. And he hopes for it and he longs for it and he prays for it because Paul gets it. He gets Isaiah. He gets the Psalms and he gets the fact that whether we like it or not, whether we get along with each other or not, we are stuck with each other. 
in the divine plan of God. We're meant to be together. Jew and Gentile, Greek and Jew, Roman, Greek, uh, Armenian, uh, you know, European, African, Latin American, all of us, we're actually meant to be together. That's God's divine design. And there's nowhere in the scriptures that that's actually not clear if you really go looking for it. And that's Paul's encouragement to this community that's really struggling with who's who and who actually deserves respect and who doesn't. And he gives that answer and he says it's God's answer, whether you like that or not. Which brings us to the gospel. And this is where we'll wrap it up. And this is a troublesome passage, but it actually makes sense if you see what Jesus is doing. Matthew 15, Jesus is actually not in a Jewish territory. He's in a place called Tyre and Sidon, which are these communities up on the Mediterranean coast, kind of in the north. Um, It's the northwest part of Israel, the Holy Land. And it says at that time, Jesus withdrew. He withdrew because he's getting severely persecuted by his own people. They're seeking to kill him. They're out to get him. They're calling him, you know, working in line with Satan. They're doing horrible things and they're plotting his death. And Jesus knows it's not quite time yet. My death will come and I know exactly where I'm headed, but first I got to establish my church. So he withdraws to a place where he's unknown, to a region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, it says a Canaanite woman of that district, a foreigner, an outsider. She called out and she said, have pity on me, Lord, son of David, which for an outsider to actually recognize that Jesus, some Jew, is actually the son of David is a pretty significant insight that even the disciples haven't gotten yet. So she actually has this realization that even Jesus' closest followers, they're not even picking up on yet. And he says this, hey, my daughter is tormented by a demon. You got to help me out. But it says, Jesus did not say a word in answer to her. So Jesus' disciples came and asked him, send her away for she keeps calling after us. She's getting annoying. And he said in reply, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I was sent to the Israelites, not to the Gentiles. But the woman came and did homage to Jesus, saying, Lord, help me. And he said in reply, It is not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Please, Lord, even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the table of their masters. And Jesus said in reply, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be done as you wish. And that woman's daughter was healed right then and there from that hour. It's a really weird scene, right? So here's Jesus in this foreign territory. This woman recognizes him, gets it, has the light of faith, is revealed to her in her heart who this is. Not only that he's the son of David, but he can bring healing. And she recognizes something divine in him, it, it seems. And she's like, you got to help me. And what does he do? He, he, it's like he plays dumb with her. He's like, no, I'm not going to help you out. I only came came for the Jews. I only came for the Hebrew people, which in a certain sense is true. Jesus comes for his people. Now, why does he do that? He comes for the Jewish people to actually give the Jewish people the understanding of what their role was always supposed to be. And he gives them the grace to live it out. You were always supposed to be the light of the nations, the light to the nations, O Israel. But you've never been able to pull it off. Now I'm going to give you the grace to actually do it. That's what Paul's saying. That's what Paul's living out. But he says, I had to come to them first. And then he kind of does this thing that seems horrible. He actually says, it's not right to take the food of the children, like Israel, and throw it to the dogs. Dogs was a derogatory term that a lot of Jewish people used for the Gentiles, the Canaanites, women like her. You guys are dogs. You're outsiders. You're nothing. You're pathetic. You, you just, you know, you, you, you're dirty to us. 
And Jesus is playing on that. Jesus does not think that she is a dog and he's not calling her that. He's playing on the way that they look at the world. And I think he wants his disciples to hear it because he probably knows that they might think of the world in those terms too. And he knows that this woman is going to recognize that's how they see us. That's how they view us. But she also sees the truth in what he's saying. In a certain sense, in a, in a real sense, Jesus is testing her. Are you willing to put up with that kind of persecution? Not that Jesus is trying to persecute this woman, but he is, in a certain sense, he's kind of messing with her. He's like, I know what they say about you. I know what they call you. What is your response? And her response is, no, Lord, I get it. And I get that we're the outsiders. And I get that we're not originally the members of Israel. But even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the tables of their masters. And I think she gets on some level, whether she can articulate it or not, she gets the truth of the prophets that, no, this is meant for us as well. Maybe we're the secondary ones. Maybe we get the scraps. I think she misunderstands exactly what they're supposed to get. Maybe she doesn't. Maybe she's just playing along with Jesus's wordplay. But she recognizes on some level that, no, this covenant of salvation, this family, this healing, this mercy that God is giving in the world, it's for us as well. And Jesus gets what he doesn't get. He, he knew it from the beginning, but he tests her. He pulls it out of her and he gets this proclamation of faith on the part of this woman that again, even the disciples have not articulated faith like this woman has. And I bet he wants the disciples to hear this outsider, this quote unquote dog, this person who's a foreigner, this nobody he wants the disciples to hear she has articulated the faith and she has made a confession based on what God has revealed to her better than any of you guys have. More profound, more beautiful than anybody else has actually been able to pull off. She is going to be included in the family of God. She has access to this grace in which she stands, to paraphrase Paul. She's going to be a part of this. She gets it. And this is one of Jesus' first little steps of activating that eschatological vision that Isaiah had. Again, what's the point of all these readings? The point of all these readings is a very simple point, but the one that we continually struggle with. And we see it played out everywhere, even in the news today. We are the family of God. God's gospel message, God's mercy, God's love is meant to go out to all the nations so that all the nations can flock to the temple of God, which is Jesus himself, which is present in every tabernacle, in every Catholic church, everywhere across the entire globe. We are meant to be the home and the mount to which all nations should flock and gather. And the question is, what are we willing to do to represent that? What are we willing to do to accept and live out the grace that God has given us to be the people that provide the invitation, that say, will you come? We have access to the holy hill of God. We see and we know the grace and the love that God has poured out in the world. And will we extend our hand? Will we say, come with us? And I think that's the challenge of these gospel, or of these readings rather this week. So that's a little bit of my thoughts. This is longer than I thought it was going to be, but uh, there's a lot of good stuff in these readings. So um, hope you guys are doing well. Sorry for it just being me this week, but we'll both be back together, Father Peter and I, next week with a brand new episode. And hope you tune in, tell your friends. Uh, we'll be praying for you guys. Please pray for us, and we will see you next week. God bless.